This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Oh man, it's good to be here with you guys. Woo, life is crazy. But I know that I know that God is still in control. He is still on the throne. Tonight we're going to unpack prayer. Maybe you thought to yourself, I don't know how to pray. It's a common question that I get all the time. Don, how, do, how am I supposed to pray? What do I do? Do I walk through some liturgy? Do I, or is there an A, B, C, D that I'm supposed to follow? Ooh, wow. Sometimes we'll be going around the circle. I'm like, hey guys, let's pray. And there's one person's like, A disciple actually came to Jesus and asked him that question. It's in Luke 11, 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and disciple was really impressed. So when Jesus was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds with what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. And the the longest version, the most unpacked version, is in Matthew. So I want to take a look at at that tonight. And we're just going to break it down, and I hope that a whole new breath of fresh air comes through this for you. And then I hope that it doesn't just become something rote that you just say mindlessly, but that you'll use it as a template to build on because you'll see the value in what Jesus was teaching them. So then it just becomes a pattern in your prayer time instead of memorization or something simple like that, because there's so much happening here. Let's look at it. Matthew 6, 6 through 8, Jesus is responding, how do I pray? And he gives us this little prologue, and this is so great. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. That's Jesus initiating quiet times. We didn't just make that up at Elevate Camps. We're we're not just encouraging that for no reason. Jesus is encouraging each of us to spend regular time alone in his presence. It sounds silly, but it's really kind of true that we make a date with God. We carve out some time that we are going to make sure we're with him on a regular basis. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Get this. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the Bible says that if we'll draw close to him, he'll draw close to us. If he already knows what we're going to ask before we ask him, it pulls the emphasis off of us, this being our Christmas list. God is not showing up because he's curious about your needs. Absolutely, we can pray and petition, but he's showing up because he wants relationship with you. That's why when we draw close to him, he is right there. Is he is desiring that relationship. So Jesus goes on. Here's your template, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. And you guys probably have this memorized. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I love it. And then some Bibles include, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. So let's open this thing up. We're just going to, one bite at a time, our Father. This is a profound statement. In the Old Testament, Father is used 14 times. Actually, it's probably a bunch more. I don't know why it only says 14 in my notes here. A whole bunch of times it's used Father, but it's never a Father-Son kind of communication. It's always this corporate father of Israel, father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is turning this around and he's making it a personal term, our father, my father. When we look in Romans chapter eight, it unpacks this a little more. It says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, get this, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Abba is not just a title. Abba is what a child, a toddler, a little boy, a little girl calls their father in the Hebrew language. It is a personal term. It's that term whenever you're little and you crawled up in your dad's lap and said, Daddy. And Jesus opens with this. We can approach God with a relationship that is as intimate as a father and a daughter, a father and a son. How beautiful is that? Can you wrap your mind around that, the creator of the universe? The God that that put into place the mountains. We can see his fingerprints who threw the stars out into the sky and created black holes to give scientists headaches. That God says you can call on him as dad. Our father who is in heaven. He is a father that gets down on his knees like a father gets down with his his toddler on the floor. But we cannot forget the fact that he is almighty, sovereign God. It's interesting that they had a lot of Roman influence in this day in the Bible. And there was a thing, and the Latin word is, I'm going to mispronounce it, just accept it, is Portia Portia Protesta. Actually, it's up there. There we go. That word. And this means that the father is not only the head of his house, he owns everything in the house and everyone in the house. And in Roman culture, this could be as drastic as putting his own child to death. He had the right, legally, because of patria potestas. So whenever we call God father, and we say that he is father of a domain, his domain is not this per- this house. His domain is in heaven from the top down. What are we saying whenever we say that God is the owner of everything? He is the father in heaven. How powerful is that? So this opening phrase, our father in heaven, we are acknowledging both our closeness and his ultimate authority. He is both our dad and our almighty ruler. Hallowed be your name. May your name be made holy. This is the first of six requests in the, in the Lord's Prayer. The first three are going to focus on the preeminence of God, and the second three are the needs of, of his people. And we have this, this prayer that his name would be made holy. How do we define God's name? You already know this because I've said it a dozen times, that every time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in Scripture, 
that is being is replacing the holy name of God, Yahweh. We find that in Exodus 3. And that's what the translators have done. Whenever they've seen the word Yahweh, they translate it into Lord, all caps. And so we can see where God defines his name in Exodus 34, 5 through 8. This is so beautiful. This is worth memorizing. So I'm going to replace those, I'm going to replace those words for you. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him. This is talking about Moses standing in God's presence and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children? Thank God we're not under the curse. To the third and fourth generation, and Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. God defines his own name. He is a God who is gracious and loving and just, and he doesn't let sin slide. So whenever we're talking about God's name being made holy, we're really asking the question, we're actually praying, may God's reputation, may who he is be made known in all the earth to everyone we meet. May his name be reflected in me. Think about Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. Don't take his name in vain. This isn't just talking about using God's name as a cuss word. Like, that's a dumb idea already. But it's the idea of don't take as in don't carry, like you're taking luggage, his name in vain. Do not carry his name in vain wherever you go. Because he's stamped on us. We call ourselves Christians. We're Jesus followers. How are people seeing him in you? Are you carrying his name in vain? And so this prayer is saying, may the whole world know, may everyone I come in contact with, may every community that a Jesus believer is in recognize God for his reputation, that he is almighty, that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and that his love is for generations after generations. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking that through creation and humanity, that all would come to know and honor God's character. Your kingdom come. We don't have a king in this country. We're actually really sort of not used to the idea of a ruler being able to just tell us what to do. We vote on everything around here. Like this idea of some sort of hierarchy and there's this one guy at the top, like that really sort of bothers us. Who's this dictator, right? When we're talking about God's kingdom coming, we are recognizing God's ownership, his rulership of all that he's created. And think about Jesus's parables. How many of Jesus's parables begin with, and the kingdom of heaven is like X, Y, Z. This is the core of Jesus's teaching. The core of his teaching, Jesus was full of love and he was full of grace and he went to the cross to save us from our sins. But all of that was for the purpose of initiating and carry on the kingdom of heaven he was founding right then and there. And the kingdom was like this. So this is important to his heart. We are asking for his kingdom to advance in the world by the orchestration of God using us if he wants to. It's good to realize that we're not living for ourselves anymore. The word for king, I didn't know this, actually comes from an Arabic word that means possessor. Sort of harkens back to the whole father and the Roman thing, right? That if someone is a king, they are owners of. And we are calling God in this prayer 
to come and be king. May his kingdom come. May it start with me and bleed out. We have two kingdoms that are reigning in this world. Ephesians 6.12 talks about principalities and talks about powers of darkness and spiritual rulers. Colossians 1.13 says that we have been saved from a dominion of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. Which kingdom do you serve? I think that'd be really easy. We're like, I love Jesus. I serve that kingdom. But the next question is, can the people around you tell which kingdom you serve? How are you carrying your king's name? We are acknowledging when we pray this part that he has all authority and our deepest desire is to see him reigning as king. And the next one flows right into it. Your will be done. Babies grow up very self-centered. I've got four of them. And they are the most selfish little mini-me's I've ever seen. And they remind me that I'm often selfish. And, and, of course, they need everything, right? They need us to do everything for them. But this gives way into their thinking that their needs and their wants are just as heavy, just as important. And so soon, instead of, I'm hungry, so I'm going to throw a fit, it becomes, you didn't let me close the door, so I'm going to throw a fit. Or you didn't give me ice in my water, so I'm going to throw a fit. Or you didn't let me turn the light switch on, so I'm going to throw a fit. Or, hey, look, these aren't the blue pants that I wanted, so I'm going to throw a fit. Do I sound like I'm talking from experience here? How similar are we to children when we pray? We go into prayer most of the time really not concerned with God's will. We really just go into it with our will. Hey, Lord, let me lay out my wish list here. Sugar daddy. But God is not a genie, and prayer is not casting magic spells to get what we want. This prayer that Jesus models for us acknowledges that we go before God seeking, praying, Petitioning on behalf of his will. And Jesus models this for us. Think about Jesus in the garden. Whenever he is facing torture, humiliation, crucifixion, and death. And Jesus opens with, if it's your will. And closes his prayer with, not my will, but your will be done. Like, what? that's crazy. I would be begging on much, much smaller things, I would be begging my brains out. Lord, change your will for me. But Jesus goes in. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And so our third petition is asking for God's will to be done in and around us, even if it overrules our wills. Ouch. Give us this day our daily bread. This is probably one of my favorite lines. This fourth request This word give is actually a continuing word, as in continue to give, regularly continue to give. And it's it's hearkening back to the whole Exodus experience. Remember Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, let my people go, and then they get out in the desert, and everybody's hungry, and they're thirsty, and God gives them water from the rock. But he doesn't just, like, grow wheat. What does God do? He gives them this manna from heaven. This manna means what is it? They call it bread from heaven. But he doesn't give it to them once. He gives it to them every day for six days, right? And they only are called to go out and get just enough for now, just enough for today. What happens if they leave it, if they try to gather enough for two days? What happens? It spoils. It spoils right in the pot. They're supposed to only go out and rely on God 
that he's going to give them what they need tomorrow so they only take what they need today. Are you following me? Because if they store up enough for the whole week, they're saying, God, we don't, we're not really sure if you're going to show up tomorrow to help us out. So God instructs them, just go get enough for now. Except for the Sabbath day, and they store up two days worth, and that one didn't spoil. But you're following my point. And so when this is talking about a continual, give, continual giving, it's that idea that, God, I'm trusting you with tomorrow. Only give me what I need for today. I'm in your hands. If I fall flat on my face, it's because you didn't show up. So I'm walking in faith that you are as consistent, as loving, and as faithful as you were then. Give me today my daily bread. That's so beautiful. He is our shepherd, and he is caring for us. I bet you Jesus knew that some of his disciples had these concerns, which would motivate him to, to go into this portion of a sermon. This is Luke 12, 29 through 34. And he says this, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. All the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things, all that stuff, will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags so that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is saying, look, God's got your earthly stuff. You stay focused on storing up stuff in, in heaven. You got, you got a money bag? You don't have to worry about it going bad in heaven. God's just going to keep piling that in as long as you keep seeking his kingdom and your earthly stuff, God's got you. He's the shepherd that leads us beside still waters, that takes us to green pastures. So this portion is us praying that we will follow him, knowing that he'll provide for us what and when we need it. Oh man, this next one. And forgive us our debts. Our greatest human need is not love. It's not food. It's not water. It's not even air. Our greatest human need is forgiveness because we're talking about an eternal destiny. We're talking about eternal heaven or eternal hell. That's our greatest need. You want to you want to prove my point? Look at the world around you. It's broken. It's fallen. People hurting each other. People running from life. People running from peace and joy. Trying to find it in temporary things. Trying to store up their treasure here. Our greatest need is that forgiveness. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All have fallen short of a perfect God. But there's hope. Psalm 136, it says 26 times, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. You know when you really blew it last week? His mercy endures forever. You know when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't believe you acted like that two years ago? His mercy endures forever. And tonight when you mess up again, or when you have that, that thought that you just can't root out, His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. For God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son. We have this deep need in us for forgiveness, and it was God himself who is making the way. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How have we seen the love of God? That God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be an appeasement, a propitiation for our sins. So his forgiveness was not based on our merit. You don't have to be good enough to earn his forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. 
I mean, so every time a student comes to me and they're like, Dom, how do I know I'm saved? I mean, I, I said the prayer, but I don't know if I, if I, I don't know if I really meant it. My question to you is, is God faithful? Yes. Then it's never been based on whether you meant it hard enough. It's never been based on whether you went to the right altar call or nailed the right things to the wooden cross that your youth pastor had laying on the floor. It's only ever been about his faithfulness. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes or no? Do you believe that he died to your, for your sins? Yes or no? Have you given your life to him? Yes or no? Then it's no longer a matter of what you do or say or feel. It's only a matter of his faithfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. So when we pray, forgive us of our sins, we're humbly, humbly coming to our sovereign, loving Father, asking him to purify us so we can be close to him again and again. Disclaimer, you don't have to get saved over and over and over again every time you blow it and every time you sin. That's not what I'm trying to say here. What I am trying to say is that just like I hurt my wife's feelings sometimes and it creates distance in our relationship, I need to go ask for forgiveness and get stuff right so that we can have that closeness again. That's what we do with our, with our Heavenly Father. You remember Peter? Jesus is like washing his feet. And Jesus is like, I got to do this. And Peter's like, fine, wash me all over. And Jesus is like, slow down. I just need to wash your feet. That's kind of like what's going on here. Oh, man. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Isn't that what bitterness and unforgiveness is? Is we believe that people owe us something. Maybe it's an apology. Maybe it's recompense for whatever was broken or stolen or my pride. We believe they owe us something. And yet, that little word, A-S, as. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. That's a big as. That's a big fat as. Do you understand what those two little letters are meaning here? They're meaning that, Lord, may your forgiveness towards me be as rich and as quick and as deep as the forgiveness I'm willing to give someone else. Do y'all follow me here? Because if Jesus goes on to say, if you will not forgive someone else, my heavenly father will not forgive you. And so we are actually praying, Jesus is putting this on our lips, that his forgiveness will be a direct reflection of what we are willing to offer. And so you need to consider, you may think to yourself, well, look, the worst thing I've ever done was lie, but you don't even understand what someone did to me. It was way worse than lying. And it may be hard for us to wrap our minds around that all sin is equal before God. I'd much rather have someone lie to me than stab me. That's easy for me. But it's not a matter of greater or lesser sins. It is a matter of all sin separates us from life. All sin is worthy of hell. Are you following me? So if Jesus forgave me of my lie, he's still saving me from hell. That is still a worthy, worthy reason to bow before him and let anything go from anybody else. I know it's hard to wrap our minds around. But the truth is, yes, I have been offended and hurt. But the truth is also that I have hurt and offended someone else. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and restored this crazy cosmic relationship between God and us. And he did it through forgiveness. And then Jesus takes this tool called forgiveness and he places it in our hands to wield it for other people. How wild is that? 
Jesus gives this parable. I'm not going to read the whole thing for for time's sake, but it's this guy who owes tons and tons and tons of money, like more money than he could ever earn in like a hundred lifetimes. I don't know, just throw out numbers and add zeros. That's how much money this guy owes. And he knows if he can't pay up, he's going to be thrown into a dungeon and locked away from his family, maybe tortured until he somehow pays off the debt, which he can't work for anyway. So he pleads and begs to this king, and the king has compassion on him and says, all right, I'm, I'm expunging your whole debt. Go, be free. And he's like, party, yeah! And so he dances his way out of the throne room and runs into someone that owes him like 20 bucks. And he grabs the person who owes him 20 bucks and starts choking him out to pay up what he owes. And the king gets word of this and brings the guy back. Come back here. I don't feel like we're completely understood each other. We're not on the same page here. I forgave you what you could never pay. How on earth could you not forgive someone such a small amount of money? And then he throws the guy right into the dungeon that he was afraid of to begin with until he could pay off this astronomical debt. And it's the idea, not that our sin was bigger than somebody else's, but it was still hell that we deserved. And so if God can forgive us something that we can never reach, how much more should we forgive people? How much more should we forgive that one person that just hurt you so much? Jesus continues on right after the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. I, I, don't, I can't get around that. I don't like that verse. I'm sorry. I, I struggle with that. It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that frustrate me the most. It's the parts I do understand all too well. But that's what Jesus tells us. It is an expectation of the life of a believer to forgive people even if they don't deserve it, especially when they don't deserve it. We never deserve forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. So we are committing ourselves to respond to his loving, unconditional forgiveness. We are called to respond to his loving, unconditional forgiveness by turning around and giving that same thing to other people unconditionally with love. Oh man, that one, I just, the forgiveness thing, it messes me up. And finally, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Another translation is deliver us from the evil one. Some commentaries say that that's more accurate. James one thirteen tells us that God doesn't tempt. So the best understanding of this is praying, lead us out of temptation, not don't tempt me, but lead us out of being tempted. Get me around the situations that I know that I'll be tempted in. Like, I, I don't want to just not sin. I don't even want to taste temptation. Lord, I, I want to have this heart that's so pure and clean before you. You know, what's crazy is we don't just have a competitor. We have a vile, hateful enemy that is strategically working against you and me. Moment by moment, breath by breath. He is called in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. First Peter calls him a lion seeking who he can devour. Jesus in John 10 says that he is the thief coming to steal, to kill and destroy. And he wants to do all of those to you and to me. He hates you and he wants death for you. And so he's willing to feed you candy until you self-destruct. That's our enemy. And so this prayer is wrapping up with saying, Lord, lead me out of this. Lead me out of temptation. When we have this enemy that has this candy with the fish hook in it, like, 
I don't even want to see it. Lead me around this stuff. I love it. The good news that this prayer is also lining up with is also in James. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and the devil will what? Flee from you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we talked about it last week, that God will always make a way of escape. That's the same prayer. Lead me out of temptation. Get me out. Provide a way of escape for me. I love this heart. So we are praying that we're not just free from sin. We did that two lines ago. But we're praying out of this love that we have that we don't even risk temptation. We want to be solely and completely his. I don't even want to see anything else that would challenge that. Do you notice Jesus' pattern? It opens with a recognition of relationship. It's both intimate, like with a father, and it's massive, transcendent ruler awesomeness. And I have words for it. He's our sovereign ruler. So it opens with a recognition of who he is and how we relate to him. The next thing is three requests. It's a request for his, his reputation, his kingdom, and his will. And then three needs of us. And they are our daily needs, our relationships with each other, and our personal heart, our sin. How beautiful a pattern. And so we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer. Uh, is Miko still in the room? Do you have anybody that can come play keys for a minute? Sorry, I didn't prearrange this. Olivia or anybody come play? Thank you, Olivia. We're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to spend some time in prayer. And I'd like you to think beyond just the memorization of the Lord's Prayer. Can you uh, put the slide up with the whole prayer for me? I want you guys to be able to see it. But I'd like you to use this as a template. Take, take a moment and go line by line and just spend a, a minute or two praying through that. You can open up just in your own words, like, Lord, you're my dad. I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being so near to me. Thank you that despite how awesome and how huge you are, that you would kneel down and know me. I mean, isn't that what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 8 when he says, who is man that you're mindful of him? Who are humans that you would visit them? Anyway, I'm getting off subject. Let's go through these line by line. Take some time and pray through this. Just use it as a template between you and God. And then my challenge number two is that when you go home and you start spending time with the Lord on your own, which I hope that you're doing every day, making a date with Jesus, that you'll start applying this into just a pattern of how you pray. That part of what, whenever you pray is surrendering to his will. Part of when you pray is offering your sin up to him and making sure there's no one that you're bitter against. Part of how you pray is praying that, that people that you know would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The part of how you pray is, is asking that he would maneuver you around temptation. And if you're in it, that he'll get you out quick. Let this become a pattern of how we spend time with Jesus. So let's just take a few minutes. I don't know what time it is. Cool. We have a few minutes. Let's just pray together, just in silence, wherever you are. And I've got the, the verse up here so you can kind of follow it as you go. And let's do this together as a community. It's supposed to be a community prayer. Look, our Father, our trespasses. It's supposed to be us praying together anyway. So let's do it together. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and spend some time with Jesus together.
Thank you, Dad, for your presence. Lord, I pray that Elevate students will walk out of here, men and women of integrity, pursuing righteousness, rejecting what is evil, walking as light and salt in a dark world. That every social media post, that every word they say, every joke they tell, that every conversation they have, that everything that they wear, the places they go, the things they do, let them glorify you. Holy Spirit, come and fill your people, your church. Mold us and make us. You are our king. You have complete control. Help us to surrender our hearts to you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the seeds that are planted that will be fertile soil. Lord, I pray for health, spiritual health and physical health for all of us, Lord. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.